few announcements. Our tithes and offerings we give, we put in the boxes in the back, if you have those this morning. And Lord, we are so thankful that you provide for us, for all of our needs. And you provide seed for the sower as we sow into your kingdom and other places, wherever you show us, Lord. We're so thankful that you are our provider. You are our provider, and we trust you, and we give from our hearts of love and cheer. We see that so much at this time of year as well, Lord, of the giving that comes forth at Christmas time, Lord. So we thank you for that. And Lord, while we're praying, we just cover this time of the story as well. We thank you for your anointing on this, that we really might hear your heart of what you would bring forth through this story today. Touch our hearts, those that may hear it online as well. But Lord, that impact of your spirit, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name. I just want to thank, for one thing, um, our story. It's, the way it's printed out, and there was editing, surely... Walker helped with that, and my mom typed up it's like 50-some pages of this. And it's not easy typing, because there's all the quotes and such, but she still put them out really fast. Thank you, Mom. And um, also, a word next Sunday, we're having our Christmas service at 10 o'clock here. And um, we'll also be having several people helping with that. Just thankful for the willing helpers and readers and singers, worship leaders and audio-visual guys and gals. We're very thankful. This morning you received one of these. If you didn't, maybe you can raise your hand. Probably a few left. As we introduce the story... It is a prose play in four acts by Joseph L. Wheeler called By the Fireplace. And I want to introduce the cast of characters here. I'll be the narrator, but we have these characters. There's Anthony, or he's called Tony in the story. Schiller, actually I spelled that wrong, Schuler it was, but it's a middle-aged minister from Boston. Dan Modry is gonna be in that role. Carol Schuler says Schiller again. I, I, I typed this, I think. Okay, uh, but it's Tony's wife. It's housewife, writer, and that'll be Angie Modry. We have Diane Schuler. That's actually their daughter, Diane Schuler Graham, daughter of Tony and Carol, and she is a TV anchor woman in Denver. And Sarah Erholtz will be in that role. Barry Graham, husband of Diane, an entrepreneur and land developer. That's Andrew Erholtz. Uh, Thomas, or called Tom in the story, Graham. That's the son of Barry and Diane, and grandson of um, Tony and Carol. 
Um, a junior business major at Vanderbilt University, and Peter Coffin will be in that role. Then we have Kimberly, called Kim in the story, Graham. Also, she's a daughter of Barry and Diane. She's a sophomore in liberal arts major at University of Colorado in Boulder. And Linnea Coffin will be in that role. And then, last but not least at all, really, is Cass Cassandra or Cassie Graham. She's the daughter of Barry and Diane. And she's eight-year-old daughter, and that role is going to be Elsie Erholtz be in that role. So, By the Fireplace by Joseph Wheeler. Our prologue. This is your captain speaking. You have noticed, I'm sure, the air turbulence. I've been informed by Denver Air Traffic Control that it's going to get considerably worse as we land because we are caught between two massive storm fronts, one coming down from Canada and another coming up from Mexico. Please keep your seatbelts fastened as we prepare for landing. From seats 6B and 6C come these words. But there's another woman in Barry's life. But why is she surprised, Carol? There's another man in her life for some time now. Oh, you mean, of course, Mr. Brawny, owner of the TV station where she works? Of course. He's been after her since the day he first saw her performing in the play at the Boole Theater. Asked her to interview for a job, remember? He dumped that longtime anchorwoman to get to her. I remember, and Diane let him. More than that, she encouraged him. I never knew that. I didn't tell you because, because, well, I wasn't proud of what our daughter was becoming. Because of her beauty and charisma, everything she's ever wanted has always come her way. Well, come to think of it, you're right. Whether it was social, vice president, prom queen, or the leading role in a play, it's always been hers for the asking. Hers without asking. True. Tony, somewhere, somehow we must have failed her as her parents. I feel the same. Maybe we should have clipped her wings rather than permitting her to soar. Possibly. But I feel the problem is deeper than that. Growing up, she was a committed Christian. Somewhere along the way, she discarded Christianity. She almost never goes to church anymore. She's always been ambitious, but lately it's become an obsession. Now she's determined to displace one of the network anchorwomen in New York, where the action is, to use her words. Mr. Brawny is encouraging that? Well, yes. His money enables him to live anywhere. Last night, Dan admitted that he suggested that they both file for divorce at the same time so they'd be free to... Well, to, uh... To, uh, what? To move in together? He doesn't want to be tied down by marriage vows ever again. And Diane? Well, she said that though she had not yet agreed to file for divorce, she and Barry have been having serious problems, been arguing a lot with each other. 
weren't even sleeping in the same bedroom anymore. Doesn't sound good. Not at all. So what did you say? What could I say? Especially when she added, as kind of an aside, Really, Mother, the truth of the matter is that I just don't think marriage is such a big deal anymore. Almost half of my associates and friends are living together without it. Wow, how she has changed. Almost wish we hadn't come. Well, that wouldn't change anything. Who knows? Some words of ours may make a difference. Not likely. Yet, with God, all things are possible. And shudders. The nose leaps up, then plunges down and wrenches sideways. The passengers are silent, each worrying about their safety. All are quiet, that is, except two deeply concerned parents. But Carol, what if they do break up? Tom and Kim may be able to handle it, but what about little Cassie? An eight-and-a-half-year-old going on 16. Cassie is so adult for her age. Wonder how much the disintegrating home has contributed to that. Most likely a lot. But she's always been wise beyond her years. True. No small thanks to her devouring every book in sight. Of course, what else does she have to do when she lets herself into an empty house after every school day? I know, that poor little lamb. It just isn't right, Tony, and it isn't even safe. Ugh, and now all of this. But she's not the only child I worry about. Tom has always been the sensitive, philosophical one, a deep thinker, not athletic at all, just like I was at his age. But Barry has raged at him, shouting, no son of mine is gonna be a namby-pamby. You get out there on the field and play, like it or not. I think that deep down, Tommy still loves the Lord. Those early years of church every Sunday and church school during the elementary years, they had to have left some kind of impression on him. Remember he used to say, when I grow up, I want to be a preacher just like Poppy. Oh, I do indeed. And now he's at Vanderbilt University. And hating every minute of it, Barry ordered him to take major in business administration. How else are you to take over our family business, he tells him. And every time Tom would dare say, but Dad, I don't like business, the roof caved in on him. Poor boy, what a mess life can be. Somehow, Carol, I'm not sure that the breaking up of his home wouldn't shatter him inside. He's such a sentimentalist. He loves family, holidays such as Christmas. He lives for them, a matter of fact. Just like you, Tony. He's just like you. Then perhaps, of the three, Kim may be able to handle divorce the best. In some ways, she's like you. In some ways, she's like her mother. And in some ways, she's very much her own self. Oh, in what ways? Well, like you and Diane, she's extremely verbal. With her nearly photographic memory, she's a natural at memorizing poems, readings, short stories, speeches, and dramatic scripts. And like you and Diane, Kim has always turned heads, not just once, but two times, even three. But you haven't said how she's different. Well, I was coming to that. Like her mother, Kim has found life so easy that everything she's ever wanted just fell into her lap. Neither of them have ever had to struggle. 
All three of you attract people like bears to honey, but with a real difference. You genuinely love people. Diane, on the other hand, uses people. A huge difference. And Kim? I don't really know. I strongly suspect she's more like her mother than you. Only time will tell. Hard to believe that little adorable blonde is now a sophomore at the University of Colorado majoring in, according to her mother, parties and a good time. She's also like her mother in that beneath that dazzling smile is an armor thick enough to plate a tank. Both are vulnerable inside, but you'd never know it by the facade. It would take something seismic to crack that veneer. It would take a miracle, Tony. You're so right. It would take God. Both are silent for some time, <coughs> peering down at Denver's landscape below, set against the backdrop of the majestic Rockies. Finally, Carol takes her husband's hand and makes a request. Tony, in human terms, there appears to be no hope for this marriage. Oh, it's such a disaster. You could bank on it. But with God, nothing is impossible. Will you pray with me now before we face them? Let's turn this whole mess over to God. And ask him to use us to fulfill his plan for their lives. Because we of ourselves, well, we can't do nothing. Nothing but love him, love them. So he prays. Every Sunday he preaches to and prays for his congregation, his people, now he turns closer to home, praying for his children with a new urgency. Oh Lord, you know that our hearts are breaking, for Diane and Barry have strayed far from you and almost as far from each other. Tom and Kim have lost their way as well. Poor Cassie, what will happen to her when her little world collapses? Oh God, we can do nothing to stop it, but you can. It would take a miracle, but you are the God of miracles. We humbly ask for that miracle. In your hands we leave it. Opening their eyes, they see through the window the pavilions of the Denver International Airport. The landing rough, they hold hands and tell the big silver bird, Frontier Flight 6. 36 stabilizes and the engines scream as the captain reverses them. The passengers applaud. Act 1, Scene 1. A few hours later, Tony and Carol pull their luggage from the trunk of their rental car and walk along the brick sidewalk to their daughter's front door. It is a log cabin in name only. This castle of a house is on a lake near Conifer Mountain. Barry built it to endure, to, end to defy winds of up to 200 miles an hour. Its great room is anchored by a huge moss rock fireplace and flanked by soaring glass windows. Inside this fortress of wood and stone and glass, on this Christmas Eve day are seven people who walk on eggshells around one another. They test each word before proceeding to the next, afraid that the floor of their lives might give way at any moment. 
The meteorologist's weather forecast is grim. Frankly, folks, I've got bad news for us all. It's been almost a century since two giant storms met in this way. Ordinarily, storms from the north move into and out of our front range rather quickly, leaving relatively little snow behind. It's the storms from the south that we fear. They can drop heavy amounts of snow on us, but they, too, usually move through rather quickly. But what we are facing us today is a monster blizzard of biblical proportions. The two great storms, both low-pressure systems, are expected to meet right here and then stall out. We predict that this will stall and last for perhaps two or three days before moving on out, burying those in the foothills and dumping perhaps three feet on Denver. Better hurry down to the grocery store and stock up. This is the long-predicted big one. Hey, everybody, get a load of this. I'll believe it when I see it. I, I'll tell you, these weather guessers, they're wrong far more than they're ever right. Act 1, Scene 2. By 4.15, it is sleeting, and the sky is turning dark. At 4.48, Cassie shouts from the kitchen window. Look, everyone, it's snowing. We're going to have a white Christmas after all. Snow intensifies into a whiteout. Tony, standing by the window with his arm around Cassie, prophesies, You know, Cassie, if this keeps up, it'll dump two inches an hour on us. That's not much. It will be if it keeps up at that rate. That could total four feet in only one day. Wow. Dominating one corner of the great room is a 12-foot Christmas tree, resplendent in its light and rare ornaments. In happier times, family tradition dictated that everyone tromp out into the cold weather in order to find the perfect evergreen. Afterward, the tree was decorated with paper or popcorn chains and homemade ornaments. Not so now. The tree is ordered and delivered by a service that provides even the decorations. No one in the family has to lift a finger. At 6.13, the lights go off. Hastily, the kerosene lanterns are lit as well as candles and a vigorous candelabra. The lights come on again at 6.21, but at 6.33, they go off again and they stay off. Gradually, everyone settles down in chairs, recliners, and sofas near the crackling fire in the great fireplace. Kim and Cassie serve everyone a light supper. No one says grace. Tony takes Carol's hand and they pray silently. Talk drags. Everyone keeps staring out at the storm that's battering the house. Tom picks up a phone receiver and announces, Phone's dead. Ah, oh, man. And look, even the Christmas tree's dark now. It's just, it's strange, you know? We have no TV, no radio. Now what? Sensing the awkward silence, Diane attempts to stir up some conversation. Somehow it's not the same without 
Grandpa and Grandma Graham here. First time there's been a break in our family circle. And she pauses guiltily, thinking of her own discussions about filing for divorce with Mr. Brawny. She looks at Barry, who avoids eye contact with her. All right, if we're going to avoid it, let's just, let's get it out there. Why did Grandpa Graham have to wreck our family by walking out on Grandma and moving in with that woman half his age, hmm? How could he desert Grandma after all these years? Don't know, son. Answers Barry. This time, it is Kim who uses the term mother only when she is angry or deadly serious. Mother? And her voice winces. What about us here in this room? Do we still have a family? Of course. Of course. The words are said too quickly, too snappishly to ring true. For how long? Silence. Deathly silence. Kim restlessly pours in. For how long, mother? Silence again. Then a muffled, I really don't know. Tom now looks across at his father and says, All right, how about you, Dad? Do you know for how long? Another long silence followed by, Well, I don't know either. Off in a corner, all this time, has been the smallest one of all, absolutely silent. She now breaks her long silence with, not a question, but a statement of fact. And we don't have Jesus anymore either. Like Tom, Cassie thinks more than she speaks. As time had passed, more and more she had missed church, worship, story hour, and grace before meals, and God. But she's not yet through. Her parents would have been astonished by how analytical her mind is, how their words, tone, body language, and expressions are fed into her inner computers for slow and meditative data processing. Though not old enough yet to be tackling life's toughest problems, she is old enough to sense that the great house, impregnable from without, is nevertheless collapsing from within. More than is true of anyone else in the family, each of the shocks administered by her mother and father has increased her inner anguish. On this Christmas Eve, since her brother and sister have voiced their deepest fears, she decided to clear the air on yet another matter, one that has cast a second cloud, darker even than divorce over her young life. It has to do with her self-worth, something never questioned before. She now glances back and forth at both parents, gathering her, her courage. Mommy, Daddy? What is it, dear? Why didn't you want me? Shocked silence. I know I wasn't wanted. Uh, that's not true, dear. You were always wanted. Resolutely, Cassie plows on, the weight of the world on her frail little shoulders. It is true. 
I heard you and Daddy talking about it. You were fighting, and I was scared, because you didn't used to fight. You used to love each other. Mommy, you said, remember, Barry, we were through. We didn't want any more children. Then Cassie came along and compl com complicated everything. Am I the reason you don't love each other anymore? The impossible happens. Diane's drop-dead beauty, beautiful face, crumbles from within, cracking the protective plates like brittle cast iron. Underneath is raw devastation. She leaps out of her chair and runs blindly from the room. Barry follows, and outside the storm rages. Act two, scene one. For a long time, for a time after a hasty exodus, there's a stunned silence in the room. It's broken only by a little body hurtling across the room onto her grandmother's lap. And there she weeps convulsively. It seems impossible that a small child could contain such an intensity of suffering. Grandma Carol just keeps holding her tightly in her arms, kissing her and crooning the tender words that mothers have whispered since time immemorial. When the torrent of sobbing finally passes, <clears throat> Cassie whispers a question into her grandmother's neck. And did you and Poppy want me? Oh my goodness, yes, my darling girl. 10,000 times, a thousand times yes. We couldn't even imagine a world without you. And she holds her even tighter. Reassured on this all-important question, Cassie relaxes and shortly afterward drifts into sleep. Only then does Kim get up and sit down next to her grandmother. Grammy, now that Cassie has had her cry, can I have mine? Carol's other arm encircles her, and she leans over to kiss her again and again. I don't know how, Grammy. I couldn't have survived this night without you and Poppy. You two are the only stability I have left, the only light in my darkness. But what about God, my dear? God has deserted me, too. Oh, God never deserts a child of his, dear. Never. If I could only believe that, Grammy, you have no idea how close I was to the edge, even before tonight. And how is that, dear? Well, realizing our home was falling apart, not respecting my parents like I used to, Dad will do anything for a buck, and Mother doesn't care who she tramples on to get to the top. Then the divorce we all felt coming and losing God, too. Well, I felt like life was just a cruel joke, not worth living. Grammy, I'm ashamed to tell you this, but I had decided that I'd just let go when I got back to school. Let go? Yes, just give in to everything. What's the good, what's the use of being good when no one else is? Grammy, I'm lost. If I go back to Boulder without answers, I swear I'll just end it all. At this last outburst, Tom 
stands up and beckons his grandfather to follow him into an adjacent room where candles are burning. There they sit on a sofa side by side. The grandfather knows enough to wait, but he doesn't have to wait long. Um, Grandpa, hearing uh, Cassie and, and Kim's heartbreak just now, uh, and especially Kim's, it, it just about tears me apart. I, I had no idea that she was so close to breaking. Neither did I, son. I kind of like that, you calling me son. I've, I think I've needed a father for a long time now. Well, Tom, I've known for a long time that you are more like me than my own daughter is. Huh. I've never, never really thought about it like that before. Tom looking at his grandfather with a new set of lenses. You know, now, I think I, think I know you'll understand. I've got to talk to someone, or, or like Tim, I'm just, I'm likely to do something desperate. Try me, Tom. I will. So, for starters, I've long felt just like Kim do does about Mom and Dad. I, I don't respect them either. And, and I even find it hard to love them sometimes. They're just both so, so self-centered, you know? And in spite of that, they, repre they represent the only, well, home, whatever that is, the three of us have. And divorce would take the last remnants of stability out of our life. And never again would the three of us have any one place to go home to. You know, I think God brought you and Grammy here tonight. Without you on this awful night, this, this house would, and all those in it would just be going down in flames. There is a long silence before he continues. And you know what, Grandpa? I, I really hate, I, I hate business. <laughs> I always have, and I think I always will. But your father insisted on it, didn't he? How did you guess? We've known about it for a long time, Tom. We know a lot of things. Even, even about the di divorce? Even the divorce. Your mother shared that possibility with your grandmother last night. <sighs> well, that makes things a little easier, I guess that you know already, um, I'm really so glad that you guys are here. Yes, we're here. The whole situation looks so impossible. Humanly speaking, the marriage appears doomed. Humanly speaking? Yes, without God. But with God, miracles are still possible. Well, we can agree, agree there, Grandpa. It would take that. After another long period of silence, he continues. Um, Grandpa, I think I think I want to share something very personal with you. I'd be honored. I've started attending church again. Praise the Lord! Yeah, for a long time now, I've been convicted that without God, life just, it, it makes no sense, whatever. True indeed. And in Nashville, I found this church I like, and it's led by a young pastor, and he draws in all these college students just by the hundreds. And he makes, he makes sense, you know, and he speaks, speaks our language, and he's taken an interest in me personally. Bless him for that. And, well, uh, I've met uh, a, a girl. At church? Yeah, we were, we were working at the soup kitchen in the downtown Nashville, um, where all the, those down-and-outers come. What's she like? Well, she's like... Grandma must have been when she was young. That lovely? That lovely. Inside, too? Yes, and I'm not, I'm not nearly good enough for her, though. Does she agree with that assumption? 
Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, she says that I must um, remain in her life only as a friend. Well, until... Until what? Until I can make Jesus the Lord of my life. An astute woman, indeed. Right. Uh, she says that until I've made that decision and develop a purpose for my life, there can, there can be no possible future for us, so... I'd like to meet her. She sounds like a keeper. <laughs> she is, believe me. So, what are you going to do about it? Well, before the roof on our lives just caved in tonight, I was, I was going to ask you if, well, if you'd help me show me the way. And tonight changes things for you? Well, it's like Kim. The floor of my life is just, it's buckled and it's caved in. I, I'm not now in any condition to seriously address those questions. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm not even sure I want to go back to church when I return to Nashville. I just, I don't even know if I still believe in God. I, I just... Tom, it's been a long, hard day for all of us. Why don't we round up the sleeping bags, and you and I can take turns stoking the fire, as I seriously doubt we'll see your parents before morning. Now, I don't know about that. They don't sleep together in the master bedroom anymore, but in separate bedrooms that have no fireplaces in them. So I wouldn't be surprised to see them join us later on. Back in the grade room, Kim is still talking to her grandmother. Cassie looks like a sleeping angel painted by Raphael, her favorite teddy bear drawn up to her cheek. Tony and his grandson look unseeingly out at the blizzard and listen to the shrieking wind Clearly, the storm won't be going anywhere else soon. In time, five sleeping bags are drawn up next to the fireplace. And about an hour later, fulfilling Tom's prediction, two more. About midway point, we're going to have you stand right where you are. Please don't leave the room. Just stand. Say hi to the person next to you. We're going to stand up and stretch, too. For this, before the second half here. You can do your little calisthenic thing or whatever. <clears throat> Act two, scene two. Poppy, Poppy, get up. I've got a yardstick. Let's go outside and measure the snow. Oh, is it morning already? Yes, and it's Christmas. We didn't have any Christmas last night. Tony thinks to himself, true, and I strongly suspect we won't have much of one today. Okay, dear. Oh, my back. Wasn't quite the same as our pillow top mattress back home, but I'll get up. Shortly afterward, they venture hand in hand into what looks like a celestial flower sifter hundreds of miles across. They're frosted white in only seconds. It's deep, isn't it, Poppy? Yes, dear. Let's just see how deep. Would you believe it? it it's 27 inches here. It's 32 inches here. And it's 29 inches here. With the sleet that came first and the wind and the settling, we've had a good three feet so far. Probably 30 inches on the ground now. Come, let's go tell them. Act two, scene three. Diane approaches Carol. Mommy, we need to talk. 
Of course, dear. Where? In the sitting room. There's a kerosene heater there. That'll be fine. Breakfast Carol had been struck by her daughter's ravaged face. She had seemingly aged several years during the night. Clearly, behind closed doors, something had been happening. After closing the door, the two women sit down on the sofa. Mommy, do you still love me? Oh, of course, darling. Carol gathers her into her arms and kisses her again and again. Of course. How could you ever doubt it? Sobbing is all the answer that she gets. Not a gut-wrenchingly intense one like Cassie had had, but lasting longer and, yes, much longer. As though a dam had been breached, it was taking a long time before the lake behind it emptied itself into the canyon below. When the deluge finally had run its course, Diane lays her head on her mother's lap and silently looks up at her. With her handkerchief, the mother tenderly wipes away the tears and even now, they still continue to roll down her daughter's cheeks. And then Diane smiles a smile such as the mother hasn't seen since her daughter's childhood. A pure smile devoid of a mask. Diane reaches up to touch her mother's still lovely face and then she says, Most likely I'll never call you mommy again, but today I need the mother of my childhood. I don't think it's humanly possible to feel more of an absolute failure than I do this morning. I hardly slept a wink all night, neither did Barry. We just kept listening to the shrieking wind and pelting snow and thinking. We didn't say a word to each other, but along toward dawn, he took my hand and kissed it. It has been a long time since we've even touched each other. Mother says nothing and continues to stroke her daughter's hair. Mommy, as the world would have it, Barry and I had everything. Little did the world know we had nothing. Nothing of any enduring worth. Let me rephrase that. We had everything, but didn't know it. We had each other, and were in the process of discarding each other as so much trash. We had three wonderful, caring children, but weren't aware of it. We had you and dad, but took you, your stability, and love for each other for granted, just as we did with Barry's parents. And we had God, and we discarded him too. Oh, Mommy, how much bigger a failure can there be than all this? Her mother smiles and says, I can think of a worse failure. What? Not right realizing this until it was too late to save all that you now value. A look of wonder sweeps over Diane's face, restoring some of its lost beauty. You, you don't, you don't mean it's not too late, do you? No, dear. This morning, it's not yet too late. But your feet, 
and berries are on the very edge of an abyss. One more step backward, and you'll regret it for the rest of your life. Diane still struggles to comprehend the unexpected miracle. I can't. I, I just can't realize that our lives aren't over. You're sure. She takes her mother's hand in hers and clenches them with the fierce strength of a drowning swimmer. You're sure you've talked to them, all of them? Her mother smiles reassurance. Last night, the two girls needed, desperately needed, a mother. We wept together for hours. And Tom? Last night, he needed, just as desperately, a father. And your father filled that role with him, also for hours. I, I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. It's just too good to be true. And the children don't hate us. Her mother pauses, looks outside at the falling snow, and then turns back and says, No, hate is not the word. The words I'd substitute are disillusioned, disappointed, feeling rejected, feeling unloved, and feeling unvalued. I hate to say this, but I guess I must if I'm to be honest. They've lost respect for both of you. Diane sits up, looking her mother straight in the eye. You've come this far. Don't dare stop now. Please, start with me in that loss of respect. I could handle almost anything but that. Her mother pauses a long time, searching for the right words. Diane knows better than to try to hurry her. Well, dear, first of all, because Tom and Kim perceive you as someone who would destroy her closest friend if, well, if such an act would help her achieve career success and get her to the top. Diane's face crumbles once again just as it had the night before. Again, she buries her head on her mother's shoulders and weeps, saying as she beats a fist vainly on the back of the sofa. Don't tell me more. Please don't tell me anymore. Just hold me. Hold me tight. Tell me you still love me. Again, the tears fall like rain. Sometime later, Diane sits up again and wipes her eyes. My... What a big crybaby I am. I've never cried this much in my life. I'm sure of it, dear. Diane now turns away and is silent for a long time. Her mother says nothing, just continues to hold her. Finally, the younger woman turns her face back toward her mother and says, That took guts to tell me that, but I needed, desperately needed to be told. The children are right. I would do just that. In fact, I was planning to do just that. I'm, I'm a despicable woman. Her mother said nothing. As for Barry, I can't answer for him. Suffice it to say that we've been two of a kind. There, I've said it. We've been. I so hope we can reverse the direction of our lives. With the Lord's help, dear, you can do just that. With the Lord's help, that's it. How can I get his help 
when we turned away from him years ago, not all at once, but gradually, that has to be the biggest failure of all. After a moment, her mother nods her head and says, You're right, dear. Because of that and the threatened divorce, all three children feel as though the bottom is falling out of their world. I can't speak for Tom. You'll have to ask Dad about that. But Kim, she was ready last night to give up every principle she's ever valued. This time, several minutes pass before either woman says a word. Then Diane speaks again, but no longer as a child seeking solace from a parent. She speaks as a wife and a mother herself. Mom, how right you are. We are all on the brink of absolute ruin. It is so easy to be self-centered. They said that too, didn't they? Never mind. The guilty look in your eyes gives you away. Yes, I've been unbearably self-centered, never even thinking of the ripple effect of my, of our actions. I'd ask you what else was said or implied about me, but I don't think I could handle it without an absolute collapse. I feel plucked with not a feather to my soul. Another long silence follows then. Mom, I'm escaping into my bedroom for a while to have it out with myself and God. I don't even want to talk with Barry yet. By the way, he probably feels like a plucked chicken himself by now. He's been having it out with Dad. Mom, thanks for your toughness. It gives me hope. This morning, I needed to know the worst. Strangely enough, just knowing the worst gives me hope that it is not yet too late to salvage our marriage, our home. No, it's got to be more than that, to regain my self-respect and my relationship with God. For a while, Diane seems to forget her mother's presence and a faraway look comes into her eyes. Almost with a jolt, awareness returns and with it, a new air of resolution. Would you do me yet another favor, dear mother? And she holds the beloved face in her hands and kisses her. Give me an hour to commune with my soul, then send Barry to me. Meanwhile, would you and Dad mind playing games with the children? None of us are in the mood to celebrate Christmas today. But if Barry is agreeable, we may have an idea as to a substitute activity later today. Bye. And she is gone on feet that no longer drag, but fairly fly. Act two, scene four. Sometime later, after she has more fully digested the last couple hours, Carol enters the great room. Tom, Kim, and Cassie are playing Monopoly. Tony is standing by the window looking out at the falling snow. Softly, she crosses the room and puts her hand on his shoulder. How did it go? Instead of answering, she says, Come into the sitting room. We need to talk. Once seated, he asks again, How did it go? Oh, tough. Very tough. But Diane wanted it that way. 
By the way, I'm curious. Did Barry talk to you by any chance? I'll say he did. Must have been a lot like yours. Barry led me down to the basement den, lit a fire in the fireplace, sat down in the armchair across from me, looked up, down, and around, everywhere but at me, all the while clenching and unclenching his hands. Finally, he turned to me, and his face was drawn, as I have never seen it before. He looked awful, years older than last night. I don't know what I expected he would say to me, but I most certainly didn't expect what he did say. He said, Dad, and he choked on that word, I'm not even sure you consider me your son anymore. I broke in, reached over and took his hand in mine and said, Son, of course you're still my son. And I want you to know that no matter what you might ever do or say, we will always love you. You will always be our son. Tony pauses to regain his composure before going on. Have you ever seen a strong man break down? Well, he did completely. He wept great sobs and shook his body as if he were being battered by the storm outside. I don't think there's anything much harder to take than for one man to watch another man break down emotionally. Carol reaches over and takes his hand. I fully understand. Diane wept just as convulsively. Finally, Barry, after having cried for some time, looked up and said, Dad, you must think I'm nothing but a big crybaby, but I have to go on to you because now that my father has abandoned both my mother and us and his children, we just feel left out. His new live-in has displaced us all. That's why I came unglued when you assured me that I was still your son and that you still loved me. Same page of the hymnal as Diane was on. Well, fortunately, you and I debriefed this morning about last night, so I was able to respond to his questions as honestly as I could without giving away confidences. When we were through, he was ashen, absolutely ashen. What really got him was the loss of respect of his children. I'm convinced that this was the first time in his life that he had looked at himself without rose-tinted glasses. It just about annihilated his his feelings of self-worth. Wow, amazing how similar your experience was to mine with Diane. Also, I had to ask him. I looked him straight in the eye and said, Barry, how far has it gone with you and your associate? To the very brink, Dad, but thank God no further. Then he was silent for some time. Seemed like forever to me before awareness of where he was came back into his eyes. He stood up, pulled me to my feet, gave me a bear hug, and raced out of the room. I haven't seen him since. Honey, God appears to be answering our prayer. That's what I was thinking. Now we'll just have to see how it plays out. Tony, Diane asked me to wait an hour. It's a little over that now. Would you mind finding Barry and telling him that Diane wants to talk with him in her bedroom? Glad to. This is getting interesting. Feels as though I'm in the middle of a play. Perhaps we are, Tony. Perhaps we are. And God has written the script.
Act Three, Scene One. About an hour later, Barry walks into the great room, silently beckoning everyone with a crooked finger, and they follow him upstairs to Diane's bedroom. He knocks once and leads them in, but it is a totally different Diane than they had seen last. Joy had returned to her eyes, and youth is flooding back in her cheeks. The same transformation has taken place in Barry. The children look at them wonderingly. Diane and Barry look at each of them one at a time, and then Diane says, We have a confession to make. Barry nods. We now realize just how close we came to losing each other, losing you, losing God. We, we've been on our knees and and here her control breaks down and Barry pulls her closer to him with tenderness so long absent in his treatment of her. What your mother is trying to say is this. We both feel as though we have been complete failures in most everything that really counts in life. He softly kisses Diane's forehead. Failures in our parenting, failures in our treatment of people in our profession, failures in our relationship with God. How, how can... Voice breaks. Diane comes to his rescue. How is it possible to fail more than we have? But in spite of that, we are hoping and praying that each of you children will, will... Give us another chance. Nothing more can be said, for suddenly, spontaneously, all five of them are in one another's arms, sobbing. Finally, remembering the other two who have been standing there, hand in hand, taking it all in, the circle is extended to seven. Act three, scene two. Sometime later, Diane turns to her father. Dad, Barry and I have a favor to ask of you. About 23 years ago, you married us. Two kids. Well, we never grew up. Until last night and this morning. As Diane smiles her childhood impish smile, and then she laughs at the look on their faces when she says, Can you be ready, Dad, at 4 p.m. to marry us by the fireplace? <clears throat> the first one didn't take very well. Tie us together tighter this time, Dad. I don't want to ever lose this woman again. Barry kisses Diane again. Act three, scene three. It is four o'clock on the dot. The snow is now halfway up the first story of the house. Tony is standing by the fireplace in his suit, his Bible in his hand. Carol is attired in the best dress she brought and is sitting at the nine-foot piano. The only light in the room besides that of the fire and the dim light outside comes from the candelabra. Carol begins to play some of the same love songs that had graced the wedding 23 years before. Softly and slowly into the room comes an adorable eight-year-old flower girl attired in her best dress, a glowing light in her eyes, Next comes Kim in the dress that she had 
born at a cousin's wedding. Gone is the despair, the despondency. Here instead is hope for the future, joy, self-confidence. She makes a detour to the piano in order to engulf her grandmother in a hug before continuing on to her grandfather to give him one just like it. Then she moves over to Cassie, leans down and kisses her, and takes her hand. Next comes the groom, attired in a tux. He too detours to the piano and then to the flower girl, then to the maid of honor and last to his father-in-law. Now Carol begins the wedding march. Played by so many in so many places, millions of times before, but always new. And a vision in white, the same dress made by her mother that she'd worn 23 years before. Tom had found it by flashlight deep in the recesses of the attic. He now struts down the aisle in his stand-in role as father of the bride. Piano player stumbles once as the bride embraces her, kissing the mother who did so much for her and her family. The bride detours to the flower girl who looks with awe at her mother's stunning beauty and whose eyes mist as she takes in the un unaccustomed love light directed straight at her. Diane proceeds on to her older daughter, whom she had let down so terribly. Then she turns to her son, of whom she is so proud. Last of all is her father, waiting with his Bible. All the while, buried rinks her in as though he had never really seen her before. Tenderly, almost adoringly, he watches her every move, reaching down twice for his handkerchief. He now watches as Tom kisses his mother. Then he hugs his son before being joined by his bride at the blazing hearth. Their eyes meet. It has been a long time, so long, since he has seen that look there, looking at him as if he were all that she ever wanted. The children, like parched flowers in a spring rain, are restored to life. Each look that passes between the bride and the groom is a new crossbar under the floor. Each squeeze or embrace another rafter supporting the roof. And now the mother of the bride joins her husband at the front. She has been one part of this incredible miracle. God, Tony, and she. What is he to say, his father? who only 24 hours before had believed such a sight as this to be the remotest of all probabilities. He now lifts his face up toward God. Lord, I thank you. We thank you for giving us back our daughter, our son, our family. Truly, it is a divine miracle, impossible without you. Cassie, or Cassandra, do you know that each child born creates her own love? When you were born, you didn't dilute or take away the love your mother and father had for you, for Tom or Kim, for you are a miracle. 
There can never be just another like you, because God never creates two of anything exactly alike. Cassie looks up at her mother and father and says, Is that true, what Poppy says? The bride and groom interrupt the ceremony by sweeping down on their youngest child and enfolding her to them. Then through her tears, the bride says, It's true, it's true, darling. Don't know how we could face life without our Cassie. It takes a while before the bride stands up and smooths out her dress, now stained with precious tears. Cassie, you now know how quickly you can lose everything you love most. If God is turned away from your door, you are only a little girl. Yet Jesus would have died just for you if you were the only girl in the world. So you must never, ever leave Jesus outside your door. Hold on to his hand, dear Cassie. Never let go of it again. No matter how tall you grow or how much gray sneaks into your hair. And now, Kim, who as priceless as all the diamonds of Kimberly, from which comes your name, you have learned, my very dear Kim, in recent days, weeks, months, and years, how easily love can be lost if it is not continually nurtured. It is like that firecracker red geranium that sings to God all winter there by the window. All turn to look. How long would it look this joyful, this vibrant, this beautiful, if you watered it only once in a while? Or worse yet, not at all. Love is just like that. You can never take it for granted. You are old enough too, Kim, to have learned that beauty, popularity, and status are only temporary. Your face is beautiful now, but it will not long remain so if you do not remain beautiful inside. By that, I mean you must seek always to bring joy into the lives of others, to be always a fountain of God's love that brings spring with you wherever you go. If you remain that selfless, that giving, you will be just as beautiful as your grandmother is at her age. Tom, Thomas, like our Lord's disciple, you opened up your heart to me last night. Quite possibly those closest to you are unaware of your own journey in recent months, your own realization that life without God is unthinkable, your own current crossroads, your challenge to honestly and earnestly answer life's vital questions concerning the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now that the Lord is being welcomed back, into this house, and your parents are renewing their love for each other, I am at your service to continuing the discussion we began last night. And now we come to the bride and the groom. Diane and Barry, what can I possibly say in my frail words that you may perhaps remember in the days and years ahead? That Tom, Kim, and Cassie may remember as well? First of all, you have already learned that love must never be taken for granted. One is never home free. In a way, with our spouse, we all have to remain on company behavior. When company comes, what do we do? Why, we clean up the house, top to bottom, put fresh towels on the racks, place flowers in the vases, and set the table with the best china and silverware. Why don't we do the same for those who are closest to us? 
especially to and for our life partner. Our best side, we must love the most. When we fail to do so, love alters, it diminishes. Much has been written about passion, and passion is wonderful, but nothing, nothing but God's love lasts always. But respect can last and grow. Remember that in marriage, love may precede respect, but it cannot survive the loss of it. It cannot survive the loss of it. Only God can keep two people together for a lifetime, asking God each day to bless them and each specifically praying for the other will make a difference. Yes, the family that prays together stays together. After the vows have been said, the minister father announces, It is my privilege and joy as your father and as a minister of the gospel to declare once again that you are husband and wife. I now introduce all of you in this vast audience Mr. and Mrs. Barry and Diane Graham. Act three, scene four. It is over. So is the wedding supper prepared on the Coleman kerosene stove. Outside, the storm shows no signs of abating. More than five feet now. Seven of them watch sights that never grow old. No matter how many years you watch them, logs burning in an open fireplace, and the snow falling from the sky. Act four, scene one. It's December 27. There's eight feet of snow on the ground. The sun comes out. The white world dazzles especially the snow-flocked trees silhouetted against the deep blue sky of Colorado's high country. All seven stand by the window. Let's go sledding. How are we going to do that, Cassie? You just disappear into that deep snow. We won't even find you till next spring. <laughs> it's going to be some time before we get plowed out, though. Oof. Suddenly, the lights come on. Turn them off. Turn them off. Please turn them off. Cassie's commands sound like they're an emergency. Everyone rushes to obey, leaving only the lights on the tree. What's the matter, honey? Asked her mother, deeply concerned. It's, it's just that I don't want things to be like they were before, ever. I like the quiet of us all sitting by the fireplace. Can't we keep it this way, please? A knowing look passes between her father and mother, then Barry answers, his lips twitching just a little. I guess that might be arranged. He looks over to the glorious Christmas tree, now ablaze in lights and the packages so long neglected. What about the tree? Do we turn off those lights too? Cassie takes a long, hard look at the tree wrinkles up her brow as though she was being asked to make a great judicial decision, and then makes her announcement. Well, perhaps we can leave them on. They're so beautiful. A great light of discovery comes in her eyes. Say, since we can't go sledding, why don't we have Christmas? Epilogue. Christmas is over for another year. 
This time the presents proved to be the least significant part of the holiday for the real present, the one priceless present has been the restoration of the family, of love, of God. It has been a long day for Cassie, and her eyes begin to glaze over. Okay, you dear Moppet, it's long past your bedtime. Tonight we all get to sleep in beds. Calculating look comes into Cassie's eyes. All right, Daddy, as long as you carry me up the stairs. Guess I don't have any choice. First of all, though, kiss everyone good night, darling. The last scene of this memorable Christmas is a slippy little girl's face, her arms trustingly entwined around her father's neck, singing toward the end of the verse of her voice coming forth. It sounds like a music box winding down. With Jesus in the family, happy, happy home, happy, happy home, happy, happy home. With Jesus in the family, happy, happy home, happy, happy. Her eyes close and her fingers relax. Cassie is asleep. Close of our story. Okay, let's just let's just close our eyes and Look to the Lord here a moment. In a moment, we're going to sing Silent Night together. But before that, let's just look to the Lord. And uh, it's a pretty intense story in a lot of ways. Many, many of us have been through maybe different parts of that story, or we've, it, it hit home to us in different ways. Sometimes even like Barry and Diane felt, we may feel like failures or whatever. But you know, the message of this story is the hope in Jesus Christ, the babe of Christmas. And no matter where we are at in our lives, and this is concerns our relationship with him, this is an opportunity for us if we have not received Jesus as our Savior before, to receive him. Maybe our walk with him is not what it has been in the past. Even has rang true for some in this story. Well, this day, this 15th of December 2019, can be the turning point. We saw turning points in the story. This can be your turning point back to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Coming home to him, so to speak, in that new place, restored place. Then also in marriages, no matter where we might be in that arena as far as 
marriage is concerned, we know that we can receive God's life, God's light, God's direction, his blessing, his favor, all that we need at this point in our lives to bring us to that step of light, walking in the light concerning it. If there's any forgiveness needed on our part towards someone, we can make that decision. And so, Lord, we look to you in all these things we've just mentioned, and we ask for your help. Like Barry and Diane were saying, it's imp it was impossible for them and Carol too. Lord, we just can identify sometimes with some of these people. Without your help, we can't do it. And the younger ones, the college age, even Cassie, how you worked in her life, Lord. Turn things. It was by your Holy Spirit. That's what it is. It's by your Holy Spirit. And we ask for your help now. So if you've never received Jesus as your Savior, and I'll have everybody just say this, and you can renew it if you have before, even his Lordship. Just repeat this after me. Father, I believe in Jesus. I believe he came to earth as a babe. Grew up, lived on this earth, suffered and died for me, went to hell for me, and rose from the grave for me. I believe and I receive your salvation. I call you Lord of my life. Thank you, Lord, that I'm part of your family now. Amen. So, Lord, we do. We thank you for that. We thank you. You are the Lord of our lives. And we thank you for working in our marriages, in our homes, in whatever place it is that is in our heart, Lord. We call upon you now. In Jesus' name. Everyone in agreement said, Amen. Let's sing Silent Night as Julie leads us here with that. I think we have words that too so yeah yeah and you all you can be help lead too <laughs> so So tender. 
Anybody would like prayer, you'd be free to come forward for that as well. 